of knowing. All right, man. Welcome to Crow Triple Seven Radio. This is hour one of episode 457. Jason Lingren is with me and Austin Walters returned. It was almost a year ago when he was here to refresh memories. His wife had contracted a horrible form of cancer. A lot of people helped as they could. He lost her nearly a year ago. It's almost been almost exactly a year. With that, I send my just endless admiration to what he tried to do for his wife. And I'm guessing this has been a hell of a year. Um, I lost my mother. So I know kind of what he's going through. The difference is, is I knew that the death was going to occur. Anyhow, welcome, Jason. And a beautiful good morning. And welcome, Austin. Welcome back. It's been almost exactly a year. Yes. Thank you guys so much for having me back. I'm looking forward to diving in. And uh, yeah, it, it has absolutely been a, a hell of a year. <laughs> so. We're all doing the best that we can each day, right? Yeah, it's the finality, as I mentioned while we were off there, just the finality. It takes quite some time to deal with. The, I mean, there's no going back. It's it's happened. That's that. But in the course of the year that's now transpired, uh, you've been set on a trajectory here. Basically, what we're going to be covering in an oblique way, we'll cover other things, is biomagnetism and cancer. And the biomagnetism thing is so interesting on so many levels. And people may remember if you've reviewed King Kill 33 or other writings attributed to James Shelby Downard, that's really the, I think what they're talking about when they talk about animal magnetism, the geomancy or the, the biomagnetic lines on the earth. I think that we're all talking about the same thing. It's just when James Shelby Downard talks about it, he's talking about people who have used the negative side of what's possible. Anyhow, what do you think, Jason? Do we want to do these bullets verbatim? He has a quote here. So Austin, why don't you start with the quote? All right. Yeah. I thought this was kind of appropriate to sort of bring things into what our therapy is, is really about. But um, quote is, there is this medicine and that medicine, this method and that method. And then there is the way that the body really is. A quote by Carrie Weinstein. And I think that's very apropos for what we're going to talk about today. Well, it's an interesting quote because it's almost a more modern version of what we've heard from the so-called old alchemists that basically say it's impossible to heal the body unless you're giving the body something that it requires to build itself or you're using something that the body is built with. And they say in those older writings, there's no other way to do it, which shines a kind of light uh, on the idea that we can put chemicals together somehow to heal the body. But are we going to jump in and do these verbatim, Austin? Uh, yes, we, we can roll right through. Absolutely. All right. Why don't you pick them up, Jason, and we'll roll in. Okay. So, Austin, let's go through a brief refresher on biomagnetism, what it is, what it's not, and what is the aim to do with this kind of therapy and why magnets? Sure. So, uh, biomagnetism is essentially the practice of using specific strength. Uh, in our case, neodymium magnets of a particular gauss. Um, it would be for us a thousand gauss or uh, higher, maybe only going up to, I would say, 3,000, maybe 4,000 gauss. And we use those magnets in pairs, uh, specific pairs on the body. So we're using both polarities, north and south, together. Um, you can think of it like a circuit. And the aim there being that we are trying to reestablish balance in that particular area in order to facilitate the body's natural function of reaching homeostasis and healing. So it 
very much differs in the way of what we would think of traditional magnet therapy, where maybe you're using a magnetic bracelet for, you know, pain or arthritis or something to that effect. And while those um, do have some benefit, uh, our aim is really not uh, geared toward that so much as it's geared toward trying to uh, help the body heal from specific illnesses, uh, diseases um, that could be acute or chronic. And we'll dive into that here soon. But that is basically the overview of the therapy is essentially trying to reestablish the body's natural ability to heal itself. And we're providing that environment by using both polarities on the body together. So it brings two things to mind. When you say Gauss for people that aren't familiar, would that be equivalent to somehow measuring the power of a magnet? Maybe it would be like electricity, this many volts or this many amps. Is that what Gauss is describing? That's kind of a way to think of it. Uh, Ken Wheeler, of course, I've mentioned him before, but he, he dives into that on his YouTube channel a little bit more. What we're really measuring when we're looking at uh, Gauss or Goss, however you want to say it, potato, potato, we're looking at the concentrated field gradient across the surface of a magnet. And so there's a lot of confusion in the industry when we're looking at specific strength magnets, right? Because uh, there's really no standard. Uh, in the industry and everybody wants to inflate their numbers and make it look like they have the most powerful magnets and this and that. Um, what we're trying to measure is the concentrated field gradient across the surface of the neodymium magnet in order to determine whether or not that field strength when it's put on the body directly is going to be enough to facilitate what we refer to as the all or nothing effect where anything less than that thousand gauss is going to produce no effect at all. And once we reach that thousand gauss or higher, uh, suddenly the body switches on and is able to use that energy. Do you have an idea? I mean, is there too much power on a magnet for the human body? And like, if I'm not mistaken, is that a rare earth magnet we're talking about, the neodymium? Yes, that would be correct. And they actually do not naturally occur in nature. Um, we, we do have to manufacture those, I'm sure, of course, somewhere in China or wherever. While on the one hand, that's, there's a downside to the manufacturing process. It's also very wonderful that we have that tool uh, availability for us to use. Um, the only really, I would say, naturally occurring magnets would be kind of, I think we mentioned in uh, episode 216, uh, lodestones or magnetite. Both of those, depending on where you mine them and what have you, actually carry both uh, positive and negative, or, and we're going to dive into those definitions here in just a minute, but what we refer to as north or south poles, um, you can find them naturally occurring in that mineral. Um, but the way that we create neodymium magnets is through a, essentially a smelting high-pressure process so that we can force a magnetic charge on one side of a piece of conglomerated metal, so to speak. So is there a limit to how powerful a magnet can be? Like, I know if you apply electricity, you can probably get a lot more power out of it, but just holding the mineral or whatever it's properly called in their hand, what is the limit uh, for power that can be had that way? Right. So for us, I would say anything past around 4,000 in a static magnet is probably either um, unhelpful or is just not going to produce uh, any more of an effect. So we get these questions a lot when we're teaching conferences, and I try to dive into the minutia of that just so that there's clarity around um, understanding and knowledge. Um, but really what we're seeing is anything over a 1,000 Gauss, you're not achieving anything more. 
So a lot of people think, oh, well, I'll get magnets that are 5,000 gauss. And so I'll see healing in a more rapid pace. And that's just, that's not how the body works. Kind of going back to our opening quote, right? There's the way that the body really is. So between that range of a thousand to, I would say three or 4,000 is just fine. You start going higher than that. Um, let's say that you were to get a, uh, they sell these big two inch by two inch uh, by two inch cube magnets on eBay that you can get for, you know, more uh, industrial purposes that have a surface gas of say 13,500. Um, those can actually start producing uh, physical effects. Like if you were to hold it up to your eye, um, you may start to see spots. And so that can actually be harmful. We wouldn't want to be pursuing those higher states of Gauss measurement. Magnetism is so fascinating to me when I'm having discussions like this or reading about it. My mind always goes to the sun and the moon uh, because I, I suspect that's what we're talking about, electricity and magnetism. And I have read from others like Walter Russell, if I'm not mistaken, his idea was that magnetism was the daughter he was very specific to put that gender in of electricity. But I'll ask you one more question before Jason pulls us forward. Do you feel like there's any relationship to what you're doing? Like, you know, the old Chinese, like a, I don't want to call it a dummy. It's a human form and all the, the power lines are mapped out or the, maybe the chi lines, whatever would be properly called for um, acupuncture and things like that. Do you feel like there's any relationship to what you're doing with those ancient Chinese ideas that are expressed in a human form in that way? I think to some degree, yes and no. A lot of times when I'm trying to explain this therapy to a, you know somebody who's completely out of the realm of either natural healing methods or anything like that, I will kind of use that verbiage or uh, try to draw an analogy to acupuncture. Although I would say that the pairs in relation to what we are doing compared to the acupuncture system don't necessarily have a relation. Although we can use magnets on acupuncture lines, uh, for us, we're looking more for patterns that we have seen. Say, if somebody has a strep throat, right? And you're looking to place what I would say is the, the black magnet or the South Pole. And you see, um, we'll dive into muscle testing in a minute, but uh, you'll see a shift in the, the body. And that indicates that there's an imbalance there. And so finding the other pair for where that bacteria or parasite or what have you is resonating for us, that's more critical. So we've built out these sort of patterns of pairs that in a way are like acupuncture, but not necessarily related to the acupuncture meridian system, if that makes sense. All right, Jason, can you pull us forward, please? All right. Can you explain why biomagnetism practitioners use magnets and pairs? And can you explain the verbiage of using the North Pole, the negative, South Pole, the positive? Absolutely. So again, just kind of reiterating this idea, right, that we rely on duality in nature. We've talked about that ad nauseum on uh, previous episodes that you know, I was a part of. And the reason that we're using pairs is because the body functions best when it can utilize both sides of the energy. It's the same idea that we have daylight and dark, right? Um, if you only have daylight, uh, you could have harmful effects. If you only have night, you could have harmful effects. So we're trying to support balance in the body by using both poles. And we are always using both poles. So there's never a time in biomagnetism where we're only using one magnet. If I'm placing one magnet, a corresponding magnet has to go somewhere. Um, and so it's very 
critical for people to understand when they're looking at this therapy. That is the differentiator between us and the rest of the magnetic therapy world, uh, whether it be PEMF devices or static, you know, magnets that go in the soles of the shoe or a magnetic pad you lay on or, you know, the beamer, any of that kind of stuff. Uh, that is what separates us is using these pairs. Now, there's a lot of confusion in the industry in terms of verbiage that is used when we think of North Pole and South Pole. There's this association of the North Pole being quote-unquote negative and the South Pole being quote-unquote positive. Those are really, I, as far as the research is concerned, um, I had to clarify this with a recent uh, participant at one of the conferences, so it helped me gain a little clarity and understanding. Um, but the only real way that we can measure negative or positive is if we have a flow of electrons and we're actually measuring electricity, uh, you know, moving from one end of something to the other. And while our bodies are electromagnetic, uh, the magnets themselves being static are, do not inherently carry a charge. So those are really just labels that people put on things. And uh, you'll see a lot of, of that stuff advertised when you're looking up uh, magnet therapy that the North Pole is more beneficial because, you know, negative ions are good for us. And we have this idea that, you know, there's a negative charge in ourselves, which is true, but the word negative carries a, a specific expectation or connotation as to what the result will be in the same way that the South Pole uh, kind of carries a connotation. And there, there's a lot of verbiage there in the magnet world um, in terms of that being something you want to shy away from. For us, we're welcoming both aspects because nature provides us both of those aspects and we see the greatest healing results when we use them together. So it just kind of help people understand that both of them carry benefits and we can see different effects with the two, uh, but when you use them together, you, you get the best balancing results. So whenever I'm trying to think about these things and I am by no means an expert, but what I do is I go to the place where I accept there is no lie, which is nature. And here's the thing. So as we move forward in time and at some point, presumably get a really good idea, a map of where we actually exist, um, that will be a big day because think what it would mean to the practitioners that are doing what you're doing. But think about this. If we were on a flat plane and there's already a thing here called the North Pole and all the old alchemical texts and all the really good healers I know there's an idea that the ground is negative and that the air is positive. So when I think about a South Pole, I don't think about it probably as on the landmass. It would either have to be under the landmass or above the landmass. Do you see where I'm going here? But we already know, or it's already been claimed that there's a positive charge to the air, which is also assigned to masculine. Um, the negative and mother earth or mother nature being assigned the negative. Do you see where I'm going there? Do you think there's any, any validity to thinking like that, that if, if there was a South pole, it would need to be below us or above us. I would definitely agree with that. And I think too, it's interesting, you know, when we're talking about these terms, it's easy to get lost in the term and, you know, pulling yourself outside of that and just realizing that these are really just fields that are all around us all the time. And that, yes, I would agree, uh, you know, that South Pole would make sense to be underneath us if we are looking at a, a gradient going, you know, up from our plane where we're standing as to be the positive aspect. Uh, in terms of the magnetic fields themselves, you know, we're just looking at uh, what we would refer to as the North Pole is really 
north facing, not to interject any kind of confusion for people. But really, if you look at it, um, the north facing magnet or what we label north is actually facing the geographic south of the magnetic field line, right? Because opposites attract. So what we uh, label as north is actually pointing south. And what is pointing south is actually facing north. And those terms can get very confusing. But um, I do agree with you, Crow, that there is value in thinking of those ideas in that way. And I would imagine a lot of those probably play a bigger role in not only our therapy, but a lot of the, you know, the grounding therapies or utilizing some of these uh, frequencies that we see, uh, whether it be in, you know, Rife machines, Tesla machines, uh, you know, multi-wave oscillator, all of that stuff is just, to me, is in its infancy. And I feel like some of that knowledge has also been lost too. And I'm getting a little bit off track. So that's okay. It's a fascinating topic and I'll shut up after I just point this out in the Walter Russell work. The universal one, I think he, I think I'm getting this right. He makes the claim that magnetism is misdescribed and, and he says something to the effect that it's not an attracting force, it's a repelling force. Um, but I just find that interesting uh, because so much of what he said is important to me. But anyhow, I don't want to pull us too far off. So Austin, can you tell us why being a good detective is more important than trying to be a healer? and why it's important to ask the body the right questions during a biomagnetism session. Absolutely. So this really starts to dive into what it is that we do, right? And so there are so many people who are trying to heal from some type of dis-ease, some type of illness, um, you know, whether it be physical, emotional, what have you. And so for us, um, we're, we're really, I think, in the alternative healing world, um, there are again, labels, right. And words have meaning. And I think when you are seen as somebody who, uh, you go to, to, to get a result from, um, there's an expectation set, uh, whether that be unintentional or intentional, uh, people tend to view you as, as a healer. What I try to explain to people is that I am not really doing anything. I am there to help facilitate your body doing its job because we're, we all carry the same ability, which is, uh, you know, the, the magic of the entire human body is that it can recover from, I mean, absolutely just the most horrendous diseases that you've ever seen, but you always have uh, cases where people have what we would refer to as a miracle or miraculous healing um, occur, but that's because their body did the job. Now, you as an external force acting in uh, conjunction with this person, yes, you are there to help facilitate that person's healing, and you do want them to feel like they are being uh, cared for and looked after, but you are not the person who is healing. Um, and, and really, even at, at the very core of it, the magnets themselves are not what is doing the healing. They are just providing the environment so that the body can do its job correctly. Um, this goes into more about like what we've talked about with pH and, uh, you just mentioned Crow about sort of the magnetic fields being a, like a, a repelling effect. Really what's happening inside the body is we're utilizing, uh, the power of potential hydrogen where hydrogen can move around and the amount of functions that hydrogen plays a role in, in the body is, is pretty extensive. 
But the one that we're really kind of tapping into and utilizing the most is the ability for hydrogen to get rid of uh, dead cellular waste and to bring new oxygenation into tissues and water and all these different things. All that being said, it is more important for me as a practitioner to try and be uh, as neutral as possible with the client so that I can really approach it from a standpoint of what is in this person's best interest and highest good without an expectation. I really want to be able to look for clues um, as opposed to assuming that I can quote unquote fix something for a person. Because at the end of the day, it has to be that person's body that is going to be what heals. And so really when we're utilizing uh, muscle testing, uh, which we can dive into here in a second if we'd like. Um, but what I'm doing is I'm trying to field questions from the body so that I can get a better understanding of the environment that is going on. I'm not looking to try and fix it right in, in the moment. What I'm trying to do is gain more knowledge and understanding about the needs of the environment. What does this person really have to have in order to jumpstart the process so that their body can then uh, go forward and, and make these, you know, miraculous changes that people report. And that, that also goes to the fact that it is so important and critical to be asking the right questions, as we'll see in a few minutes, um, how the double slit experiment in quantum physics kind of plays a role in that. But the body is just so innately smart. It, it fascinates me every time that I work with a client or a family member or a friend that there's this, uh, information that you can get from somebody's body and that the brain is able to store and provide this uh, feed biofeedback to us. And then to be able to actually see the physical results of that, uh, whether it be from, you know, a rash that gets better or someone's emotional mental state and their behavior starts to change over time. It's just absolutely fascinating, but you don't get there unless you are as neutral as possible and it, it's kind of like I try to explain and teach in some of the conferences. When you approach a client, you're really approaching, <laughs> this might be a bad analogy, but you're really trying to approach sort of a crime scene, right? Uh, a pathogen has, has come in and upset the system. And what you're doing is you're looking for the fingerprints and you're looking for the broken glass and you're trying to piece together this picture so that you can better understand what happened there and why it occurred. Once you understand that, then you're able to uh, help reestablish what is necessary for the body to do its job. You know, it's interesting, the thought process that you just went through, because as you were speaking, I began to think about the idea that it's not another that's healing you. The body is healing itself in a way. Isn't that idea kind of encapsulated in a placebo, right? So somebody with authority who is perceived as a healer gives you a pill that's basically sugar or something and your body heals itself. It kind of underscores the reality of what you're talking about. But as you got into hydrogen there, I don't even know how old I was before I knew what pH actually meant. Way too old, you know, the power of hydrogen and words do have meaning, but I, I don't want to pull us off track here. So Austin, why don't you walk us through what a session generally looks like and who can benefit from one? All right. So typically someone would come to a biomagnetism practitioner and normally you would have somebody laid out on a massage table, fully clothed. And this is really just for ease of use for the practitioner. Typically we have the uh, ankles sort of dangle off of the edge of the massage table or bed with 
these sort of special shoes that we've designed that just makes it easy for us to muscle test because primarily we are using the feet to muscle test. You get a better response out of the, the uh, muscle contraction or relaxation of a client when you've got a bolster you know, under the knees and the legs can just hang there. So there's, uh, you're eliminating variables of error uh, when you're muscle testing because it can be one of those sort of double-edged swords where uh, you may be looking for what we would refer to as a yes or no, um, which I'll explain in a second. But typically, we have that client laid out on the table fully clothed, and then I will be at the end of the table, and we sort of have a rhythmic, for lack of a better word, sort of a jiggle to the feet. And what this is doing is it's sending a signal to the musculature in the body and the legs specifically uh, to allow a just a gentle relaxation and contraction so that I can ask the body questions or tap into the, uh, the energy field of the client. And from there, we have a pretty specific criteria of what we refer to as scanning, where we are looking for uh, pathogens and emotions that are present in you know, the particular client that we're trying to help facilitate healing with. And based on uh, the muscle testing and what we find, we would then start placing pairs that correspond with specific uh, imbalances, as it's called uh, for us in biomagnetism. We have to be very careful with the legal verb, you know, the verbs and things that we use just because of, you know, the nonsense that we see with uh, traditional Western medicine and what they are allowed to say in terms of treat and cure and address and all these things. And we're only allowed to say, you know, rebalance or may support all of that kind of stuff. Uh, for your listeners, that can be a little more candid where we, yes, are actually trying to address disease in a very specific laser-focused way so that we can get rid of it without having to use the intervention of antibiotics or drugs or you know this or that. And of course, our therapy is also one that um, supports and can work alongside really any other therapy, which is the beauty of this because the body already needs magnetic energy, period. Um, and we can dive into that later if we want. Um, but the point is, is that uh, during a session, you're essentially going to be loaded up with all these different pairs of magnets. And being in that environment in that time frame, not only does it allow the person to uh, fully relax and feel like they're cared for, which like you said, Crow, I think part of that goes to placebo or belief. And this person comes in and they believe they're getting better, which spawns a process, I think. And then the physicality of it where the magnetic fields are having a specific effect on the area in question, moving hydrogen around. Uh, we can also see physical manifestations of that through uh, blood work where you can do dark field microscopy and actually see, you know, befores and afters where if you were to take, you know, a blood sample of a, what we would look at as an unhealthy patient, maybe somebody who's very uh, obese or diabetes or anything like that, where the blood uh, kind of sludges up or what we refer to as the Rouleau effect, where you can physically see the red blood cells sort of stacking together and they're not free flowing. And then you can take a blood sample of somebody after a biomagnetism session, usually about 30 minutes after, and then all of a sudden these blood cells are free flowing, they're moving around. So you know that you did have a physical effect. Generally a session will last between, I'd say, an hour to two hours, somewhere in there. Uh, for cancer patients, it may look a little bit different. And again, going back to the detective point, each session is completely different. And even sometimes with the same client, 
because really what you're looking at is a unique ecosystem, right? Every time you go to the forest, it's a little bit different. Um, so we're, we're trying to look at the body in that same way where it's not just, uh, you know, very cut and dry, the exact same process every time. And while we're using a guideline, uh, sometimes you dive into areas that you may need to explore. And part of that goes into intuition and intention, which we're going to talk about here in a little bit. But yeah, that, that's basically what a, a session looks like. Really, anyone can benefit from this therapy, especially considering how toxic you know, our modern day environment is, the amount of stress that we're under all the time, finances, anxieties, emotions, dramas with family members, relationships, work, whatever it is, everybody at some point has been what we would refer to as sick. And then other people have chronic ailments. So uh, even what I would say is a, you know, a healthy person can benefit from this, even if it's just an overall feeling of uh, what I get a lot of clients say is lightness. They feel much lighter after a session. So facilitating that sympathetic to parasympathetic state where we're now relaxing the body and allowing it to be in a rest and digest mode so that it can actually heal. You know, isn't it interesting when you think about all that and the placebo, it's what you said, the individual suddenly accepts that they're healing and somehow this magical idea is sent to the body. Okay. Do what you need to do to heal. It's always fascinated me to the point where I imagine uh, in a, in a distant time, you know, you might attribute half to the healing ability to what a person thinks is true, but we're about to get into an experiment, which has fascinated me for years. And one more time, I'll refer people to Walter Russell's Universal One. After I read that, it made me consider, are particles real? Is there really a real valid description in that? And it got me to look at it. Unfortunately, I'm not smart enough with math and physics and things like that. But Jason, let's get into the double slit experiment. Right. So you'd mentioned earlier the double slit experiment and the observer effect. So let's uh, get an explanation on how magnetic fields behave like particles, but also like waves and why this matters to biomagnetism therapy. Sure. So this for us is really a, a cornerstone for our therapy, right? Um, if, if there's to be any efficacy, you know, to some degree, we need to be able to show uh, physicality to how that functions and works in, in terms of 3D matter and what we're looking at. So the double slit experiment was performed. I won't dive into, you know, the who's, what's, where's, why's, and when's. Everybody could go look up the double slit experiment. There's a really brief cartoon explanation you can go look up on YouTube where they kind of explain how it was done. But essentially, researchers fired a bunch of particles at a, a backdrop with one slit in it. Uh, these were protons, so we're looking at light waves. And they wanted to see if uh, they would behave in different ways based on how many slits they could put in this backdrop. What they discovered about magnetic fields is that when they, when they tried to set up fields and push them through these slits, uh, that they behaved a lot differently than expected. So what they determined was that magnetic fields actually behave both like light particles and they also behave like waves. Now, why that's important for us is because waves actually uh, travel through infinity, right? So if we think about a radio wave and you set up, you know, whatever radio station they're broadcasting off of the mountain, you know, pushing 100,000 watts or whatever, and that wave travels however far it will go before you can no longer hear it. 
But if we were able to actually observe that wave with an instrument or with our eyes, you would actually see that it just continues to go on and on and on. Why that's important for us is because when we're placing magnets on the body, not only is it on the surface there, but it's actually physically traveling through the body and then continues outward and continues to go forward. Um, we'll dive into remote here in a little while and why that's important, but this is just sort of laying a foundation so that people can begin to understand why it's important that we're uh, utilizing this magnetic energy. Uh, this also ties into muscle testing. So the observer effect was interesting in relation to the devil slit experiment um, because what the researchers did was they set up these different sensors in order to determine how the light particles and the magnetic fields were behaving. And what they noticed is that based on the type of sensor they would set up, the waves would behave differently. So what that looked like is when they were testing to see if magnetic waves behaved like light particles, uh, and they set up a sensor to detect that, the magnetic waves behaved like light particles. Then when they set up a sensor to see if they could observe them behaving like waves, they behaved like waves. And this caused quantum physicists to raise the question of what is going on here. Essentially, what they determined was that somehow, uh, through some effect that maybe we do not fully understand yet, and maybe this has to do with universal consciousness or source or God, uh, whatever you would want to define that as, that somehow when we as the observer are looking at a specific behavior, uh, in our case, we might be looking at a specific point in the body that just by the mere fact of observing collapses the behavior of the wave or it changes how it's going to interact with the body. And then you get a different result. So let me give you this example and kind of what that would look like. Let's say that I place a black magnet over the heart area that might have some overall benefit. But if with my intention or my observation, I really intend for that intention to be for the AV node in the heart, the atrioventricular node. Now, yes, that magnet is still over the heart. Um, but now that I'm observing or I'm intending or trying to visualize the magnetic wave going to that specific area of the body, somehow the client's body is able to lock up or understand this concept. And then it responds by showing me like I was talking about earlier with muscle testing, the leg will lengthen or shorten. And I may have explained that in a previous episode, but essentially what muscle testing is, is also tying into the observer effect here. We're utilizing the fact that we're all connected to the ether or this um, invisible energy field that surrounds us, binds us. You can you know, use sort of the, the Jedi mentality, but it's, it is very true. And so what we're doing is I'm trying to observe in the body what is going on, but by asking those specific questions, being a good detective, being the observer, paying attention, I get a different result. So I might say something like, you know, let's say it, the person is uh, David, right? And I'm asking David's body by jiggling the feet, does David have something going on in the heart? And if his leg kind of shortens up, and usually for us, if we're looking at two flat shoes hanging off of the bed, and one of the shoes starts to retract, I might have a quarter inch of a difference. Sometimes it's a full inch, depending on how uh, large the imbalance is. But that is me observing the change in the body. The body's trying to communicate something to me. And then if I place a magnet over the heart and I get that same effect, 
where the leg shortens. That tells me, aha, I have observed the correct uh, imbalance that's going on. And now I need to place a corresponding magnet in order to allow the relaxation of the leg so that it goes back flat. And that is the balancing effect there. But what it gets more interesting because, you know, then you think about the amount of possibilities you have in terms of what you can look for in the body. Um, and I think this is why our therapy and where we're taking it really differentiates us compared to, say, maybe the original model that Dr. Goyce laid down. May he rest in peace and thankful that he pioneered this therapy. But the original uh, thought process for him was, well, I found these pairs. And these are all the pairs that are ever going to exist, right? And that there's no real exploration involved afterward, right? So if somebody has uh, pneumonia, it's just this particular pair by the lungs and that's it. Well, what we've discovered is that maybe I can pull up an image or try to better visualize what's happening in the lungs. Maybe I can start asking about the cilia in the lungs. Is there a specific area this magnetic energy needs to go in order to really laser focus, hone in? and facilitate the healing of the client. And there's so much to think of. And every time I hear the slit experiment talked about, it makes me kind of go back to the idea of, isn't this really a proof that your thinking is measurable and somehow transmitted through what used to be called ether? Anyhow, to sidestep that, has color played into what you're doing at all? You know me, I go back to cymatics all the time. So to me, a color is a vibration and you're talking about the heart. So then I start thinking about the heart chakra Has has that or any of the hermetic principle thinking made its way into what you're doing. I would say for some therapists, yes. And that also too goes back to that idea for us of having a unique client experience each time we have a session with somebody. We certainly can work with chakras because, again, that's just uh, energy centers that are moving around in the body with a label that has been misused as woo-woo. Um, but really, you're looking at just trying to shift energy. And I would say that sometimes color is involved. And I'm, it's interesting that you brought that up, Crow, because in our last conference uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, we had a girl who was colorblind. And one of our practitioners was actually trying to look at whether or not she could shift that. Uh, for this person who was colorblind. And what was interesting there is the practitioner started asking about different colors, but not in the way that you would think where you would ask the client, oh, well, can you see green or red? What she was doing was using her intuition and asking the body whether or not uh, you know, uh, the color of green was associated with an emotion for this client. And it, it kind of went off in a, a sort of an exploratory, exploratory process where uh, she was asking about these different colors that were related to some emotional events that happened for the client in childhood, which I found very fascinating. And I was kind of sitting there, you know, sort of shadowing and, and looking in because it was intriguing, uh, just a different way to approach a session with somebody. Um, but it's interesting that you mentioned that because we were literally just kind of doing that a couple of weeks ago. So I think there's definitely value to maybe putting that in our back pocket as a tool to look at. Um, I definitely also think that color plays a huge role in facilitation of healing. And so while it may not be at the forefront of what we're trying to accomplish in a session, um, I do think that there's definitely some exploratory value to it. And I would imagine if we started laser focusing and asking those questions in session or even integrating color therapy while we're doing a session, we would also see different results. 
you know, it's so fascinating. If I'm not mistaken, color blindness is prevalent in men. I remember this from the Marine Corps. I feel like it has something to do with the age 18, but if I remember correctly, um, being colorblind is much more a male thing than a female thing. And I'm not sure I have that right. But uh, if I was thinking about what you're describing, I would, you know me, I'd be looking for a foundation where I could find truth to try to somehow build from there. I would be all over the seven hermetic principles. And I would probably start reviewing Russell as, as I listened to you speak, one thing Russell did is he drew all these diagrams by hand and almost all of it feels to me like electro or electromagnetic flow because everything's spiraling to the left or to the right. Everything's positive or negative. Everything's male or female. And it goes down to this infinitesimal point and then it grows back out to where it was on the opposite. It's just interesting to hear you say that, but I got to keep us on track here. Go ahead, Jason. <laughs> all right. Please explain how intention or what might more accurately be called attention and muscle testing play a role in therapy and how intention relates to the double slit experiment. All right. Yeah. So kind of touching on these ideas and I've, I've probably already glossed over them a little bit, but it's always good to focus and uh, sort of explain it maybe in a better way. But uh, for us, intention is really everything. So like the example I was giving earlier about the heart, or maybe we could, you know, look at the spleen or whatever body part it really doesn't matter. We're looking at the person as a whole. Uh, this also plays a role with emotion, but intention is essentially the engine or the driving force of the magnetic energy. And this is really a concept that's difficult for people on the face of it to sort of uh, digest and soak up. But because we are electromagnetic beings, we're producing electricity. We could all probably agree that the brain is a transceiver, right? It can transmit information. It can receive information. Um, and that goes outside of just the old, you know, noggin that we all carry around. Uh, those, those waves are actually measurable outside of the skull. And so when you have a thought, that thought is intention, whether you are focusing on it specifically or whether it's just sort of a, you know, haphazard daydream. That thought is a creation of energy that is focused. And so for us, when we are providing this therapy, we're using our intention not only to ask questions through muscle testing, but then also to uh, activate, as we would refer to it as, to activate the magnets. So for example, if I have a magnet over the heart, and then I need one for the AV node, and then I need one maybe for the pulmonary artery. Um, let's just say that we have a you know stack of magnets that are over a specific area. Using my intention, I'm turning on or activating each one of those magnets in order to send the energy to that specific area. And again, in those pairs, right? So let's say that maybe we have a pair that's going from the heart to the spleen. I am in that moment when I'm muscle testing, asking the client, can David's body use uh, spleen to heart, and I get that foot retraction, which for me is a yes. And I place those pairs, and then maybe he also needs one from heart to left lung. Okay, then I stack another one. So using my intention, I'm saying, all right, that pair is intended for heart left lung. And so you go through this process, and you're using your intention to essentially turn on a bunch of radio stations, or however you want to think about it. You're activating all of these different pairs using your intention. The result that you get is much different than if I just stacked a bunch of magnets over the heart area and wasn't thinking about what I was doing. 
you're not really going to see the facilitation of healing in that way. So it's very important that you actually are having this exchange or conversation and dialogue inside your mind with the client's energy. Uh, of course, muscle testing is the way that we're you know, hacking the computer, so to speak. We're trying to look at what the body needs, and then we are using intention always as the driving force for this. What's very interesting is that when we give conferences and we're explaining this to people, we always mention uh, Luther Burbank is a really interesting uh, sort of case study on intention. Uh, if I remember correctly, I'm sure a listener out there will probably know one way or the other, uh, but he was experimenting with a certain cactus. And why is this important? Well, these cactus, he would actually talk to them. Uh, this was between 1907, 1925, somewhere in there. Um, and most people, if they go out to find a spineless cactus variety, will have zero clue that Luther Burbank was the person who was responsible for cultivating and propagating these spineless cactus. But what he was doing is far more interesting. So he essentially started out with a prickly pear cactus. And he every day in the morning, he would have a cup of coffee and then he would talk to this cactus. And he started having a conversation with the cactus and just said, hey, can you put away your spines? And he did this for quite some time. I don't even <laughs> know the exact time frame, but what he started to notice is that the new offshoots of the cactus that were coming up out of the ground never grew spines. So then what he did was he started experimenting over and over with different cactus varieties to see if he could uh, create these spineless cactus just by talking to them. What's really interesting is that the, the final version, the one that everybody can cultivate now, he created just by thinking to the cactus, put away your spines. So he was no longer even vocalizing to the cactus. And what I find really interesting there is that the cactus doesn't know the language that's being spoken. Uh, it could be English, it could be German, it could be you know Mandarin, it doesn't matter. It was the intention or the driving force behind the, the vocalization, or in this case, the mental thought that somehow had an interaction with this living being, the cactus, and he saw a result. So for us, that's very important because I can see anybody. It doesn't matter if you're in Norway or Japan or wherever, the language doesn't matter. It's the intention behind it. I'm Again, I'm playing detective. I'm trying to hunt down what's going on, right? The bacteria inside your body don't know English. So really, we're, we're tapping into something much deeper than all of that. And that is the driving force for our therapy, really. So as fate would have it, I can add something about Luther Burbank. There was a time when I was big into bamboo and some other plants. I was working with some people much brighter than I am. One of them had helped create one of the first glow in the dark. I think it was some kind of pine tree, like a Christmas tree. But he was going around all over from San Diego up to LA, searching the freeway off ramps, because apparently, and this is why I think what you just said is so fascinating. How can it be that a guy named Burbank was so famous for, I think it was 60 or 60 plus varieties of cactus that were unique to the work he did and no one kept them or cataloged it. You know, how did that get lost? So this guy I knew um, who was just about as smart as you can be when it comes to you know, the botany of plants and other things was finding, trying to put together all 60 varieties. And the way he was doing it was driving. 
looking in backyards and he found a whole bunch on the freeways that were left over from Burbank. But it struck me at the time, why did this man's work get forgotten? Why the LA Arboretum, why don't they have one of each, you know? And I suspect what you're saying is true because it was too woo woo for them to even possibly admit how those cactuses were, were actually made. I've always wondered about it. Well, and you know, it's also very interesting. There's another thing that we typically show in our conferences just to get people's mind around you know, how the therapy functions. And if you're learning this for the first time, it's good to have these visuals. Uh, but there was another Frenchman, I can't remember his name, um, but he did some experiments with, and I'm sure people are probably familiar with this idea, but uh, they were taking a little robot that he had programmed with just these random algorithms and it had a pencil attached to the bottom. And he stuck it in this uh, two by four sort of box that he built. And he would put down, uh, you know, paper, and he would turn the robot on and it would just draw random patterns, right? But then what he did was he said, I wonder if I can, you know, with thoughts, influence the pattern that's going on. So then what he did was he took baby chickens and he imprinted. If anybody knows about chickens, you know, they'll imprint uh, to kind of the first thing that they're in, physically in contact with. And so what this guy did was he took the chicken and he imprinted the robot so that this little baby chick would think that it's the mother. And then what he did was he stuck the chick in a little cage and he stuck the robot back in this uh, sort of framed out square open box. And his theory was, uh, you know, the chick is going to be desperate for the mother. So he's going to allow the chick to be caged. And the chick is cheaping, 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 trying to call this robot over. And what he noticed was that uh, over time, the chick was able to influence the behavior of this seemingly unconscious robot, right? And he did this over 200 times and shows the drawings where the robot, you can completely see before the chick where there was no influence. It's just this random squiggles of paper. And then after the chick is introduced and is calling out to this robot, like it needs its mother, uh, you can see the drawings goes just right over to the cage. So there's something so much larger at play here that I just absolutely think is fascinating. We'll probably talk about that all day. So, no, it's it's crazy. It, it borders on on creepy. But for me, the main takeaway is what you brought up with Burbank and what the placebo actually kind of means. That I say all the time: intent is everything. Once you know intent, you don't need to know more. You can make valid, good decisions if you know intent. And by the way. Doesn't the law prove, you know, what's the law always about? Well, was this murder? Was it premeditated? What they're saying is, is what was the intent here? Mm-hmm. Intent is critically important in our life. And as we're beginning to see through the things you're describing, uh, even in the more occulted sciences, intent is a big deal. As a matter of fact, I think in an actual old magic where it was really true magic, I think intent plays a big role in it. I would definitely agree. And I would imagine to, to some extent, you know, what we're tapping into is, is kind of that same idea. You know, we're all approaching it in different ways. Um, you know, there's different types of therapies and uh, different ways of muscle testing. There's a lot of different therapists who use uh, what they refer to as touch for health, where you touch part of the body with your intention and then you place one magnet and it'll tell you something. We're all really kind of <laughs> utilizing at the very base core of it, uh, this etheric field of information that we're all really swimming in. Um, just to kind of further this point out for listeners, and I think I gave this example before, but I'll try to be a little more uh, clarified on it. But 
you know, if, if I were to tell you to hold your hand up, palm out, all five fingers up in the air, and then I tell you, make a fist for me, and then you make a fist. Not only did I just use my intention to sort of direct you to respond in a particular way, but also I don't even have to vocalize that if somebody else were in the room that didn't know that language and I could just sort of point and communicate to them to you know, close the fist. Again, I'm using intention here as the idea. But what's also interesting is that you really as a person don't need to know all of the different neurons that just fired in order for that to happen. You don't need to know how much interstitial fluid was needed in order to make that process occur. So there's all these different things that are going on and you just inherently know how to do it. Um, so we're tapping into that same idea when we're muscle testing, you know, when I'm asking a client's body about whether or not they have uh, klebsiella pneumonia or if they have uh, malaria, how is it that I can ask that question? And it doesn't matter what the language is. You know, I've had a client who's Russian speaks very little English and I'm still able to get those same results. And it's because the, the field knows like with the Burbank, it's the intent. And it is so interesting talking with you. I can't believe you brought up Burbank and <laughs> I had had the experience and I, at first I wonder why is this guy scouring every freeway in Southern California? <laughs> you know, I couldn't figure out. I said, well, you don't understand. And I really didn't. I mean, I kind of did, but to put that much energy, you just kind of drew the bridge here of right. why it is a big deal. But topping it off the way you did, and I've got to wrap up our one here, the magic of words. How is it that we so easily lost track that there is spiritual meaning and power in words? I used to try to describe it as I'm going to put something in your mind right now and you can't stop me. And then I'd say blue ball. And when you think about the reality of what's just been done there, then you start to appreciate intent and things like that. But I've got to bring our one to a close here. Is there a place where folks can either contact you or find your work? And keep in mind, we are an hour one. So if you give an email, it could be overwhelming. Uh, yes, absolutely. My email is Design. That's H-O-L-L-O-W, design at yahoo.com. Uh, you can also learn more about biomagnetism if you want to visit usbiomag.com. Uh, that is the physician that trained me. I'm now facilitating and helping sort of teach out with these conferences, uh, Dr. Garcia. And uh, we're, we're thrilled to be able to, to have this therapy sort of go out into the world. We want to help people you know, who are ailing or so many sick people. So you can find me at holodesign.com or usbiomag.com. I'm under the therapist section. All right. Well, we've got a lot more to get through in hour two. I'm going to wrap hour one of episode 457. Such fascinating topics. And I feel in a way like, you know how people want to invest and they want to get in on the ground floor. I feel like what we're talking about, you know, it probably was known a lot more in the past than it is now, but it feels like this is the ground floor again. It feels like we're in between ages and these are the foundations that are being laid for what could be possible as we get into whatever the next age is. Anyhow, I'd like to wish you all, oh, I'm sorry. The first hour is free at crow777radio.com, C-R-R-O-W-777 radio.com. And I hope to see everyone over there for the full member episode. That's hour one of 457. And I'd like to wish you all a happy, healthy, and higher-minded new era. I'm certain the second hour is going to be just as fascinating as the first. There it is, man. Cheers.
Belief is the enemy of knowing. Come!